0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets.
1: Bon dia! This will be the greeting for this show and the next because it's time for myself and Neil Morrison to bask in one of our favourite Grand Prix of the year. Yes, we can actually work in a MotoGP paddock and sleep in our own beds. A treat and a half. Of course, the Grand Premier Monster Energy de Catalunya is round 11 of the 2023 series, nine to go in something like six weeks, so buckle up. Unusually, the Catalan round is later this year and temperatures have finally abated from the mid-30s, which is about mid-90s in Fahrenheit. And no Barcelona test, but the San Marino Grand Prix takes place at Misano only next week. So expect a few more fairing curvatures and carbon to be popping up. First of all, most important thing, I guess, on the uh, the roll call, Dave. A big happy birthday to you. How many years young and does this mean you are now finally released from the International Suspicious Persons Register?
0: <laughs> now i think that was permanent um uh no i was uh, i was 59 on hang on sunday whatever day that was but um i, I can barely remember uh, yeah, there comes a point like i stopped worrying about being um uh, about birthdays when when i turned 20 because i'd defined so much of my identity around being a teenager and then i was no longer a teenager and had an absolute uh identity crisis and from then on it's just not mattered
2: that's why you still behave like one in that case, Dave.
0: Well, yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, probably, yes. That It, it does explain an awful lot about me.
3: I like how Dave had his midlife crisis at 20. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Get it over and done with, nice and early. Will you try a milky coffee for your 60th next year? I certainly will not. I tried a milky coffee when I was about uh, 11, and it was disgusting then, and it's still disgusting.
1: Well, we had two Irishmen just speaking there. Neil, how's it going? Gatal? Tot beer.
2: Todd Pay, add, yes, very well, thank you. All good. Delighted to say that, uh, we had some rain yesterday. We also had the uh, Vuelta de España coming through Barcelona, which I think you were out of town for, but, um, they were about coming through about three or four minutes from my house, which is pretty cool to see the team time trial on Saturday. Sadly, it was hammering it down, uh, right the way through that. Um, but cool to see it nonetheless. Um, and yeah, ready for second home GP.
1: And Steve, two things. I'm sorry for, um, ejecting you out of your hosting chair this week, but that is because you've got another call to be on and you're going to be disappearing quickly. Um, but also you've been to the Isle of Man. You've been taking more photographs. You just love that place. Don't you actually? I'm trying to work out whether you love the Isle of Man more or Tony Goldsmith, who you like to invade his house. Um, you know, a friend and colleague of ours, also pretty handy with a camera lens, uh, or which is it?
3: Well, after eight years, Tony's finally found someone else that will take me on the island. So I've been staying with Stephen McClemmons, another friend of ours, a photographer. And it's, it's a fun event, the Manx. It's nothing like the TT. Like, you're not as invested in the speeds or the results as you would be at the TT. But you get to see some pretty cool bikes, RC45s. Dean Harrison was on the Ducati 916. So there's a lot of bikes that, when we were kids, you grew up watching. So it's been good fun to come to... The island and see them
1: well there's four of us talking at the moment but we've also got respected catalan radio journalist and broadcaster damia aguilar talking to us a bit later uh, we're due to record with him just after this chat actually to try and explain to us how catalanism has really invaded motor gps since the start of the century before anything else our weekly reminder to street bikers that rental.com has everything you need for any accessory updates the company not only are lords of off-road equipment but also have the goods for the road just ask the all-conquering Kawasaki racing team in World Superbike. Again, that's Rental.com to have a look. Um, guys, we have got a few talking points to rattle through uh, before we um, get Damiano into into the program. But first, you know, let's uh, let's talk about the circuit, the Barcelona Catalunya. Um, impressions. I guess the big question is, will there be any grip? Um, and you know, we're used to having this race in June, and now we're in September. So, uh, yeah, I I don't know what can we expect this weekend, Neil.
2: Um, I don't think we will have much grip pad. Um, the track was resurfaced, I think, in 2018. Last year, it was one of the big talking points, just how little grip there was and how it sort of affected everyone's racing. Um, but those, as you say, were in really high temperatures. I don't think we might have as high temperatures uh, this weekend. Um, but I seem to remember going there towards the end of September in 2020 when we had the Totally rejigged calendar for COVID nineteen, and even then, when it was rather cool, um, you know, grip was was still off the, still off the essence, and um, I think we saw lap times drop by two three seconds by the end of the race. So, yeah, um, I think it could be another one of those weekends where people are talking about maybe the need to to resurface the track, um, and uh, yeah, managing the rear tire throughout the race will be, I think, the the key.
1: Dave, last year we saw the spectacular crash between Takanakagami and Peko Bagnaia. You could perhaps say it was the the low point of Bagnaia's campaign. I mean, it was much earlier in the season, like we said. Um, Fabio Cuartararo won the Grand Prix. It was his penultimate win, actually. The last time he took a victory was the following meeting at the Saxon Ring, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly. Uh, but of course, we had that spectacular crash, and then um, yeah, we had Quateraro, Johan Zarco on the podium, and Jorge Martin. Um, I'm not going to ask you for your predictions yet because you know we don't want to lose people this early in the show with a you know a long <laughs> list of pe- you know people that could potentially win. But uh, yeah, I mean, do you, do you enjoy this GP, Jave? Is it sort of one I know you like to stay you know relatively close to the coast, and it's. Uh, it's always quite hot and warm and pleasant.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, like, this is definitely one of these Grand Prix which is good to go to because you're, you know, close to one of the great cities of the world. Um, uh, it's quite a pleasant place. I mean, there's... Uh, accommodation for Barcelona can really, really... can be quite varied. Like, this time, I'm going to be staying somewhere quite nice um, on the coast, a little town called Matarol. Um, other times, I've stayed in some of the little industrial towns sort of which which line the motorway uh uh, going north to girona um uh, and it's horrible really um so it, it really can be a, it can be a very mixed bag but i mean I, I do like the track i think the track is fantastic it's one of the best uh, it's one of the better tracks on the, on the calendar it's a proper motorbike track um especially now that they've uh, re restored turn 10 uh which i think is much better than the old um or than the hairpin that they put in um after they removed turn 10 again um but yeah it, it, it's much more like the track that it should be
1: Steve you've seen Grand Prix as well as you know World Superbike races there for the last 2 years um obviously the the track is a, a popular testing venue um for all teams and riders i think even some athletes like for example Paul Sparger and Jack Miller have used the circuit the and the catalunya extensively for you know taking a modified road bike out to get some laps in um your thoughts you like the place
3: yeah, there's been a lot of times whenever we've gone winter testing there, mid-season testing, and there's a host of Grand Prix riders out on their track bikes as well, and everyone loves Catalonia. It's a great track. It's not really one where we've a great racing in world superbikes, but a lot of that's been down to the fact this year, obviously, Alvaro Bautista was able to clear off into the distance, but we've tended to go there in September. This year, we changed an earlier date. But we've had it where even in September, you'll have 50 degree track temperature because it can still be ridiculously hot this time of year down in Catalonia. But obviously, as Neil was saying, the weather's been a little bit difficult this week so far in Barcelona. and Maybe that's going to be a factor over the weekend.
0: It's also like almost one of the hottest paddocks on the uh, the calendar just because (laughs) it's sort of in a bowl and there's all of this massive uh, extent of... Uh, asphalt and when the sun shines there it like it just all of the heat seems to collect down the bottom of there and it, um, it's uh, uh, it also tends to be quite humid so it's very hot very sweaty and not at all pleasant well Donna continued to continue to experiment a little bit with the
1: format the sprint race on saturday the podium allegedly is going to be in the monster energy compound which in previous years had been like a, a mock kind of fake beach setup right at the top of the hill over the back straight I do wonder how the likes of, say, Peko Bagnaia, who's been very much the sprint king in 2023, is going to be able to ride up there. I guess he's going to have to do half a slowing down lap and then reach this, this area. But uh, for Steve, I mean, what do you think? Because it's, again, another example of how MotoGP seems to be adopting some of the the proximity... Breaking down, if you like, of world superbike, or bringing these guys and bikes and whatever closer to the fans.
3: Yeah, well, the paddock show and the park farm for world superbikes has been pretty cool over the last few years. You've ended up where the podium is in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of the paddock. So you've got victory lane where everyone rides down, gets a high five from the crowd, and then goes on to the podium. So for fans, it's a real opportunity to get in close to the action. But the other side of that coin as well is obviously for a GP it's a much bigger crowd so you have to do it in different places. I'm quite curious to see how it works out this weekend. Obviously the sprints we've seen a different the medal celebration compared to the podium so it's nice to see something again that brings it a little bit unique for Catalonia.
1: A couple of talking points to go through, as well as the race uh, emergence on Speed Week, uh, to accompany a story that appeared from on GP One, the Italian website, which seemed, to be honest, a little far fetched. Last week was about the possible changes of the capacity rules for MotoGP. Um, Dave, you know, Gigi Delingo has been speaking about this. What's kind of your take on it? Is it something that can can we realistically expect MotoGP to be heading back to? a different kind of capacity limit, knowing how much it didn't work last time and how much Dorna had to flesh out the grids. And Steve, also, I think this is important because I think the ramifications for Superbike, you know, there's there seems to be lots of speculation about lap times, how advanced the Superbikes are. Is there any room in a motorcycle market that is increasingly moving towards like adventure bikes, naked bikes, uh, you know, dropping sales of Superbikes? You know, it seems like a real transition point for both series.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, well, the thing you have to realise, first of all, is that we are right in the middle of the negotiation period for the next set of MotoGP rules. Um, uh, the new the next set of GP rules come into power in or come into effect in 2027. Uh, and so we are right in the period where we're in the run-up negotiating the rule changes. We know we're going to be going to 100% um, uh, synthetic or non-fossil fuels. Um, the hope was originally that going to non-fossil fuels would help slow the bikes down, um, but advances are going so fast that actually non-fossil fuels are just as fast and are probably going to be even better than fossil fuels by the time we come around to actually go switching to 100% um, fuels. There's not going to be a power cut there. Um, so we're looking for ways of slowing the bikes down. This is something, like Delinia said, look, we're getting too fast. And we know this, you know, what was it 366, I think, that, uh, um, uh, was it Brad or Jack? Uh, um, yeah, that Brad hit at Mugello. 366 is a, is a lot. 225 um, miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, even that's a lot in those accursed imperial units which should be abolished. But um, uh, the bikes are just going too fast. We need to, we need to find ways to get, to to slow them down, just otherwise we're going to run out of tracks to actually race on. Um, now the obvious way to do that would be to get rid of aerodynamics and ride height devices. It looks like we're going to get rid of ride height devices, um, because I think there's going to be a majority for that but the factories do not want to get rid of aerodynamics that's going to be impossible and so we're seeing lots of things about 850 cc uh you know reducing the capacity to slow the bikes down but I do think the risk is that we do end up in the in a in a similar situation that we had with the 800s where um it stops being about um, uh, you know, it becomes less of a point and shoot and more of a corner speed sport. And corner speed sport is, for a start, it's not going to make the tracks any safer because people are just going to be crashing in a different place. Um, and it's not really going to slow them down because, you know, we saw with the 800s, the, the, the lap times by the end of the first year from the switch from 990 to 800, uh, the lap times were fast. They were already breaking lap records. Um, the only difference now is we have spec electronics. Which means you don't, you can't invest because that was one of the things which Ducati did, um, and which the, the the other factories you know quickly followed too. They realised that what what mattered was electronics, um, uh, the management of the, the management of the fuel and the management of the bike. Because we also saw a reduction in fuel capacity from I think twenty two liters to uh, to twenty liters. Um, that made that just made for a very very tedious racing. So it. I think this is uh, Gigi Delinia, um uh, he said that there are basically three and a half factories which are in favour, uh, Aprilia being the only factory against and KTM using it as a bargaining chip, um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's the right direction. I'd rather see them uh, change the maximum bore or reduce the number of gears or something like that.
1: Is that going to be more difficult to police though? Is it going to involve a lot more scrutineering?
0: No, because it's a homologated engine. I mean, you know, if you reduce the – we have a maximum bore size – um, uh, eighty-one millimeters, and so if you just go from a thousand cc and eighty-one millimeters to a thousand cc and seventy-six or seventy-five or seventy-two or whatever, whatever you decide, um then you you homologate the engine again, and it's very easy to scrutinise because you just sort of take one of the engines, pop the heads, the heads off, and measure uh, measure the bore. It's um, it it it's it's not really rocket science.
1: It's quite sort of politically charged, the situation, though, and it's far more complex than just people getting in a room and raising their hand for a vote, isn't it? Because you might want to drop speed. That could be a priority for, for everybody. But then, and of course, Dorner have been very good when it comes to you know prioritizing safety. But then also they have to think about the shape of MotoGP and, and the look of the show and the parity, of course, and the appeal for new manufacturers. That's one reason why there has been a delay or procrastination, certainly, on allowing KTM to have more grid spots. If, if Dorna do want to make MotoGP attractive to new manufacturers, then it cannot be too much of a complicated weave of, of, of technical regulations or great expense for, for brands to come into it. So, uh, I, I mean, those ne- negotiations, Dave, must be going around in circles a little bit. I, I, I can't imagine there's a clear direction as of yet.
0: And, and no, like I say, we're right in the middle of the negotiation period. Of course, the other reason that Ducati wants 850cc is because uh, their Desmo system will rev very high, very easily. They've, they've really... um Understood how to make the engines rev much higher than we thought. I remember when the eighty-one millimeter ball rule came in; everyone was sort of working out, sort of you know, mean piston speeds and stuff, saying, "Oh, they'll never get above sixteen-five, sixteen-seven thousand, uh, you know, or sixteen thousand seven hundred and fifty RPM." And it looks like they're they're currently revving over twenty thousand RPM. So that's first of all that's astonishing um Ducati have been the kings of that they've been very very good at uh, being able to do that Uh, so I I think a reduction uh, I think a reduction in ball would be a much better it would be much fairer it would give everyone a better chance I think it would also make for better racing because it'd be more about torque and drive out of corners uh, than it would be about um you know just top speed. Just touching on this, Steve, what's the feeling, you know, in World
1: Superbike when it comes to maybe the technical direction of that series? Uh, You know, there are some people, some commentators, observers who believe that you know the, the superbike should go a bit more to a lot like a proddy basis a super stock basis that you know the lap times between MotoGP and world superbike are incredibly close the performance levels of the machinery in world superbike we know the, the regulations in that series is slightly more complex or more convoluted i guess you could say but uh, you know is there anything you're sort of hearing on the ground about where it could go and how it sort of marries a little bit to MotoGP?
3: Well, to be honest, one of the big things that you hear a lot about is how close lap times are. And individual lap times are close, but race lap times are nowhere near it because Pirelli brings a qualifying tyre. They've got a really soft tyre that theoretically is there for a 10-lap race rather than, you know, a 25-lap race at a MotoGP event. So for the lap times, they can be close over a single lap. and You see it all the way through the winter. You used to always see it, Jonathan Ray faster than a MotoGP bike at Jerez But... That was because of ideal track conditions, a really soft tyre. It was too cool for a MotoGP tyre, it was ideal for a Pirelli. So really, the, the difference between a race run and a qualifying run is huge in a superbike, whereas in a MotoGP field, it's always much closer. So performance-wise, for a single lap for 90 seconds, 100 seconds, a world superbike machine can perform quite close to a MotoGP level. But over 20, 25 laps, it's nowhere near it. And it shouldn't be. It's a production bike. It's not a prototype. It's one of those things that I think when you're looking at superbikes from the outside looking in, everything always looks like you should make big changes. It's the same as when you look at BSB and you compare it to World Superbikes. You think, oh, World Superbikes should run BSB regs. But BSB regs only work on British tracks because they're small. You don't need top speed electronics aren't the limiting factor or power isn't the limiting factor. The track is the limiting factor. So I think that for us in the World Superbikes paddock, whenever we hear anyone from outside the paddock looking in, it's always a little bit of a skewed view really. And I think that anytime you hear about making things more stock, it's actually going to be where things are going to be more kit in World Superbikes rather than stock. So I think we're going to see it where they'll try and level performance for Ducati versus the other manufacturers by taking down Ducati's revs, increasing the revs for everyone else and then they're going to look at it and say well a Ducati V4R costs 45 grand and a Kawasaki or a Yamaha costs 20 so we need to do something to be able to balance these out. I think they'll go down the kit parts route to be able to balance out that performance rather than making everything more and more stock because that's just going to increase the difference that you have between the manufacturers.
1: Is the road racing landscape looking a little confusing because on one side we have super advanced prototypes like Moto E, but then also we have people saying, well, you know, dumb down Superbike. Look at the popularity of the Bagger series in the US, uh, you know, motorcycle, KTM, uh, Europe's largest manufacturer, they they sold 360,000 um, bikes or powered two wheelers uh, last year and they don't have a sports bike they have a limited edition i think it's an rcl8 um you know and maybe they only made 200 of these bikes which were sold instantly but they don't have a track bike sort of per se um you know and you think bmw a line share of their sales are going to be GS motorcycles, adventure motorcycles, maybe, you know, Superbike or MotoGP somehow should be racing a little bit more what people are buying.
3: Well, the one thing for me is when you look at baggers, there's a curiosity about them because they shouldn't be on a racetrack. But if that was what you were watching every week for your premier class, it would just be a laughing stock, it'd be a joke. And it's great that they get the popularity that they get for YouTube hits, for Insta Reels, for all that kind of stuff. People aren't staying at the track to watch a baggers race. It's not going to be the case. It's the same as at BSB whenever you've got the BMW 900 Cup. No one's sticking around to say, I've got to make sure i watch the BMW race. They're still looking to see superbike races. And I think, again, it's one of those things, if you look at things in isolation, you can make a case for baggers or for naked bikes or for this, that and the other. But you also have to ask yourself, is that the route that you want to go down? And for me, I like watching superbikes i like watching a super sport race i'm not a fan of watching the baggers i'm i i'm interested to see how they fare but i'm not setting my clock to make sure i'm watching that moto america race but i will watch the superbike race
2: i think another part of the baggers success has been the sort of manufacture battle between the harley and the uh, indian which you know i think is a big draw for americans it always was in flat track and sort of led to a recent sort of surge in, in popularity with flat track when the two manufacturers were going head to head together and would that sort of translate on a on a world stage uh, probably not because there maybe wouldn't be such a, an interest from you know a spaniard or a brit to see is a harley or is a an indian going to going to um, prevail in this one
3: well i think one of the things about baggers as well that's easy to forget because you only see an insta reel of a big slide a big wheelie or anything like that The races are won by eight seconds and they're 12 minutes long. So does anyone want to watch that? Like, I really don't believe that if that's the answer, you're just asking the wrong question. And I don't want to see races like that because when we have that in World Superbikes with Bautista running off into the distance, it's not interesting. But at least we've got a good battle behind that. But you need to find a way to be able to balance things out without going down that route for especially for your top class i mean baggers is an extreme example but you know do we really want
1: extra parity in, in like say Motor gp for for example i mean do do we need or do Dorna come in and bang their fist on the table and say you know the show is paramount you know, we, okay, we'll drop top speeds, we'll try and get them down to sort of 330 or something like that. Um I mean, it's all speculation, of course, we, we don't really know what demands are being made by the promoters as well as the manufacturers. But, you know, they would, they must have one eye on the 800 sort of, you know, era and think, well, that caused problems last time. And I, I'm just very curious as to what their kind of parameters are to the manufacturers. I mean, Dave, do you think there's any concessions at all towards
0: entertainment being being the main asking point um, uh, the 800s era well I mean it was the combination of two things first of all you had uh, you know very tedious racing uh, with the 800s uh, we only had a few good races uh, then of course there was the global financial crisis at the end of two thousand and eight um, then um, and then there were you know the the, the, the cost just spiraled out of control. Uh we saw Suzuki leaving. We were down to 17 bikes on the grid by the by the last year. Uh, that is the trauma for for Dorna. That is the that is what they're afraid of of uh, ending up with again. Um so I think that they're going to be looking for a way to make sure that they've got a fullish, equalish grid um and then find a way to make the, the racing entertaining.
3: I think for me, one of the big things is you always have to look at it that how do you increase safety, how do you improve the show? Obviously, there is always the God clause that you're able to make all changes based on safety. So our ride height device is safe, our aero safe, engine capacity, whatever you want to look at. you want to have it where all the manufacturers are involved in the process. But you also have to protect your entity. And the entity is the show. And we had great racing for years in MotoGP. I don't think anyone's looking at it and thinking that the racing's as good as it was back then. Same as it is in World Superbikes right now. We're just in that little bit of a lull. But you have to look at it and say, what will improve safety? And generally speaking, like you said earlier, Dave, whenever you when you decrease that capacity, it becomes a corner speed championship. And that's where most accidents are. So that's where you need to find that balancing point and you need to be able to create something that's going to be able to give good racing and it's like everything else there's never a simple answer to a complicated problem and they've got a complicated problem right now the
0: the the secret to good racing is having more horsepower than the type than the tire can handle um the best solution would be for michelin to make worse tires but that's not something they're interested in doing because that's terrible marketing
2: yeah and i think um Gigi was saying in that interview with Speedweek that um, they see that there is a, a bit of a a bit of a gap that they can play with. There's, he was saying there's around three, four seconds per lap, maybe compared to, if you compare a MotoGP machine to a WorldSport bike machine over race distance. Um, and that is the sort of margin that they can play with. Obviously, they wouldn't want to make bikes that are slower than World bikes. So that would sort of go against the the, the kind of the ethos of, of MotoGP in the, you know, the, the premier prototype class. But there is maybe a way that you could drop two, three seconds per lap with, um, you know, with well thought out regulations.
3: Well, there's also a way that you can drop from four to three presenters. My taxi's just arrived, so uh, (laughs) I'll have to run on, guys. But uh, good to chat to you again. See you, Steve. Take it easy. Three seasons away,
1: guys. Um, You know, it's 2027 seems like quite a distance. But if you ask Mark Marquez, um, you know, it's... (laughs) It's like another career, really. I mean, you can understand maybe his anxiety to jump out of Honda into something more competitive uh, for a rider who's coming towards the end of his career rather than one who's starting. And, and just the, the way that the competitiveness of the manufacturers can switch around so quickly. I mean, three years ago, you would not want to wanted to be on a, an Aprilia, but now it's um, it's good enough to supply a satellite team. Uh, Miguel Oliver in his first season on it looked very competitive. I mean, his ride at Silverstone was particularly memorable so it's 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 i find it quite um brain melting really to get your head around where MotoGP is and where it could be going
0: uh, yeah i mean there's i do think that there's been this revolution in terms of uh aerodynamics um uh, that is a genie that is uh not going back in the bottle anytime soon um uh, and it's been it's been a paradigm shift so it's been a change to the way that you have to think about motorcycle racing uh, and about what a MotoGP bike is um the ideal situation would be to strictly police and limit uh, aerodynamics but the trouble is you can't do that because um with the greatest of respects to uh, Corrado Cecchini and uh, Danny Aldrich and the rest of the scrutineers um they're completely outgunned you know like dorno would have maybe four or five people who are cap- who are assigned to police aerodynamics um where you know Ducati have got a room full of people whose sole purpose is to build more aer- aerodynamics world and uh, 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 work more on aer- aerodynamics and there's so much push inside of factories to improve the uh, aerodynamics to actually get the extract the maximum out of it that they will find a way around any rule which is put in place. Um, I, I, I think there, I mean, if someone could come up with a, a simple way to uh pressure it, I mean, really, what you need is to say a maximum of I don't know 5 kg for a downforce on the front wheel, uh, or perhaps on both wheels, who knows. Um, At a given speed, at 320 uh, 320 kmh. But again, that needs to be policed every single race. It means you've got to have access to uh, um, to wind tunnels. It means you've got to pay for wind tunnels. Wind tunnel times are expensive. So it's just it's my fear is that Dorna and the FIM are not capable of policing aerodynamics. It's a little bit easier for the uh, for the FIA because um, you know the car the the car world is just a wash with money.
2: Also, I think if um if, if Dorner really want to attract new manufacturers mm. uh, into MotoGP GP in the next couple of years, um, you know, I think aerodynamics is one big is, is a thing that will put factories off or potential manufacturers off because it's not just about designing a bike and an engine which is fast enough, um getting a, a grasp of the electronics on the motorcycle, it's it's then plowing X amount of money and resources into aerodynamics. And we can see when you look at someone like Honda at the moment, they're probably two, three, maybe four years behind Ducati in terms of aerodynamics when you look at the kind of what what they were bringing to the, the Red Bull ring and how the aero package was affecting the kind of the general behavior of the bike. Um, I mean, this is something that is going to require serious amount of money, serious amount of resources. Um, I mean, there are rumors that Ducati have in the region of 30 uh, specialized technicians working on their aerodynamics package. Um, you know, this is, uh, unless you have a limitless budget as a, as a manufacturer coming into MotoGP, then that's going to be very, very difficult to get on an even keel with, uh, with you know, the three European manufacturers that are currently leading the way. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's something to consider as well
0: that's exactly the problem or that was exactly the problem with the spec ele- with with the proprietary electronics uh through the 2010s um, leading up to, uh, or sorry, the, the sort of the, the 2000s, especially from 2007, from the 800 era, um, through until basically like 2015, 2016. The cost of entry, although the, the barrier to entry was too high because you had to put so much money into developing the electronics into just to even start to be competitive. And we have exactly the same system now. Just to start to be com- uh, competitive now, you first have to just dump an absolute Barrel load of money into aerodynamics to get your foot on the on the bottom rung of the ladder. I'd say, I mean, I think electronics we can understand developments in suspension and, and
1: chassis, we can also understand how that might transfer into other motorcycles in their portfolios for the manufacturers. But when it comes to aerodynamics, if you're not really selling or producing cutting edge sport bikes, then, you know, where's the transfer there? I mean, Dave, I'm not sure your GS has many much in the way of wings and, um, you know, it's certain. I mean, of course, there's going to be benefits. I mean, you, you but for a naked bike, it goes against the principle. And if they're your or smaller cylinder or smaller capacity, you know, machineries that are selling by the millions in Southeast Asia.
0: Do you know what I spend my weekend doing? Uh, putting a new windscreen on the GS uh, because of the buffeting it was causing. Oh,
1: there we go. They just completely shut down my argument.
2: <laughs> when we consider the aero on road bikes, um, if you're using your your you know um, BMW superbike to go on track days and you're a very very handy track day rider, then maybe the aero will will have an effect. But if you're just riding it casually around the countryside, I don't think you know the the sort of the, the average user is going to feel. Um, massive deal of effect with um, with aero that might be transferred to to road bikes so um, yeah
1: that's what I mean it's such a minor minor percentage of people that are buying the product
0: yeah, I mean, but, but I mean, you're looking at it in terms of aerodynamics uh, for downforce and other things. And my point would be more that what you learn when working on aerodynamics is vi- basically like vehicle dynamics, you know, about learning about airflow, how to reduce drag, how to change the, the, the way that things work. And now that can help with um the design of uh, bikes in terms of uh, because i believe that for example the, the ducati multistrada actually has some of the best um uh, wind protection for a normal or you know for for road riders because Ducati have used a lot of the the, the aerodynamics uh, that they've learned or the the lessons they've taken from aerodynamics and put it into designing the windscreen so actually the windscreen is really really good Um, and now this is just me vaguely vaguely remembering a a news story Um, so I might be right but you you have to see it in a bigger picture we're not necessarily talking about the relationship between aerodynamics and downforce we're talking about uh, you know how aerodynamics affects a motorcycle in general
1: yeah would wager that in most um, manufacturers R&D departments the the department that looks after vehicle behaviour is probably one of the biggest or most uh, developing kind of sections of development but anyway more speculation uh, Neil you wrote a, a pretty cool column um, this week um, for, for my magazine on trackoffroad.com about the Marco Buzecchi situation we touched on this subject a little bit on the last podcast but guys we're expecting this press release to drop aren't we around this weekend certainly before Misano about what he's going to be doing next year and you know, rightfully Bezecchi is is hogging a lot of the spotlight at the moment. I think people are curious about his future and uh VR forty six just seems to be the way, doesn't
2: it? Yeah, all indications point to him staying at VR forty six. Um I think uh, Paolo Giobatti mentioned this um just after the the Red Bull ring that he expects fully that Franco Morbidelli will go to Pramac and that um Bezzecki will stay within VR forty six and I guess you could say it's Maybe a crazy situation because Piseki is passing up the chance to uh, go up to effectively Ducati's B-team in the series. Um, he's re- passing up the chance to maybe ride a GP24 next year. You know, up-to-date kit, which will be ridden by, you know, two potential world championship challengers in Pekka Bagnaya, uh Jorge Martin, maybe in uh, Bastianini if he gets back on the money soon. Um but, you know, there's just a bit more that kind of goes into this. And I think we maybe touched on this in previous podcasts. But um, obviously, uh, his crew chief, he has a fantastic relationship with Matteo Flamini. And he's a very much a, a Valentino Rossi guy rather than a, a Ducati guy, per se. Um, there's no guarantee that he would leave the VR46 team if Bezecchi did. And Bizzetti has found a great working relationship with him. Also, just the kind of the ambience in the team is something that is really suited to to him and his kind of way of working. I guess he's probably looking at Bastianini's current struggles and thinking, well, you know, uh, a ticket on a, to a, a up-to-date, full-factory bike isn't always the be-all, end-all. Um, if he has Pekka Bagnia's bike from this year, next year, you have to imagine he's still going to be pretty competitive. Um, and then there's also just that debt that he kind of, I guess, he feels he owes to, to Valentino Rossi in that Rossi gave him you know, an entry to the World Championship has basically been a key part of his career, is always there to to give him advice and to mentor him. And when Rossi says that, um, you know, he wants you to stay in his team, um, chances are you're probably going to follow his advice. Um, I think he said after the race in the Red Bull Ring, not everyone in the world has the GOAT uh, pushing for them or pushing them to do things. So, um, yeah, you, you when you kind of take all those factors into, into play, you can kind of understand more why he would be willing to stay put
0: yeah it's also interesting to think about um what would have happened if it if Buzeki had been offered a seat in the factory team because maybe the jump from VR46 to Pramac even though you're on factory material and you've got more direct support from the factory it's probably not as big a jump as it is from uh, VR46 to the factory in the factory team you Lead development in the, in Pramac, you are still sort of the, you know, the, you're still involved in development, but not quite as directly as you would be in the, in the factory. Even then, you have to wonder whether it'd be worth moving up to the, the factory team. Also, because, you know, the, you know, the GP20, I mean, the GP22 is a fantastic motorcycle. The GP23 is a fantastic motorcycle. The GP24 is going to be even more fantastic, but is it going to be 10% better or is it going to be, better and do we think that Bezecchi, in the right environment with all the right people around him can um, make the difference with his riding and with his attitude yeah it's a good point
1: Um, you know Barcelona and the Catalan GP used to be a crucial part of the season just because of the one day test that followed the race Dave I mean now, now that's The proximity to Misano means that Barcelona loses that relevance slightly, but then it could also be a crux time for meetings, um, you know, particularly with the heavy Spanish contingent in the Premier class. You'd have to imagine there's going to be quite a bit of discussion going on in the paddock this weekend. Another thing, another news item um, that should be emerging in the next two weeks or so would be the 2024 calendar. Uh, Well, the provisional one, at least. I guess there's also going to be a lot of question marks over this. Um, You know, India coming into MotoGP for the first time this year in a race against time to get the circuit up to spec and homologated. And we believe that's going to happen actually on just before the, the well in the week of the race itself, so I mean, talk about cutting it fine. But then, you know, Grand Prix that we were expecting to happen, such as Kazakhstan, could that come back into the frame? Don't want to have been talking, of course, with Saudi Arabia. Could we see some sort of project emerge there? What is the future for Lombok, Neil? Um, I guess it's safe to say we're going to have at least 20 Grand Prix next year, possibly even 21, and you know you will have some very familiar venues still in place.
2: Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, um, I haven't heard too many stories leaked about potential new venues next year, um, and I guess we could we have to see how India goes this year to see whether it'll be on the calendar again um, next year. Um, but uh, yeah, it does look as though it's going to be another bumper calendar. It looks as though twenty is going to be the kind of minimum GP now going forward. Um, and yeah, let's hope that it doesn't really exceed 21. Um, I think that a lot of people now making the decisions with regards to the calendar are aware that, you know, the, the, the MotoGP paddock is kind of at stretching point when they're doing 21 races a year. So, um, you know, the, the sort of fear is that we, we go beyond that. But, um, yeah, I have my fingers crossed.
1: Yeah, and also I think, you know, one priority for Dorna will be to avoid the kind of congestion in, in the scheduling that's going to be affecting the championship in the next two months, two to three months, I should say. Uh, you know, I don't think that's something we'll see repeating again next year. Maybe the events will be better spaced out.
2: Yeah, I think because uh, of the situation with Qatar not being the first race this year, the fact that it was having major work done to the to the circuit that sort of caused this kind of late season congestion. You do think that probably next year, well, Qatar will start the season, obviously, um, in 2024, and then maybe we'll do one or two of the uh, the kind of the flyaways after that. So we kind of have a sort of a flyaway period at the start of the year, then the European season, then, you know, a less condensed flyaway uh, period toward the end.
0: Yeah, I just uh, looked on Google Maps at the so-called circuit in Kazakhstan, uh, and up until uh, sort of, the you know, earlier this year, it was still very much a, a you, you know it was still very muddy you could see the the outlines of the track but it still had to be built and the reason that the this year's race was postponed was because they couldn't get the the, the circuit finished um, because they had such a long and hard winter. Uh, but looking at it right now, just on Google Maps, and it looks like um, it's completely finished. It's completely um, uh, tarmaced and everything. So I suspect that we'll see uh, Kazakhstan on the map next year, uh, on the calendar next year. So that'll be middle of July. Um, and I think it, it, you get the feeling that it's going to be a much more traditional one. The, the question is which um spanish round is going to be dropped for next year um i think we'll be at jerez uh we'll almost certainly be at valencia because i think that's the uh, the last race um are we going to go to aragon instead of barcelona um but yeah it's gonna it's gonna be sort of fairly traditional and again the question is when do we when do we finish as we mentioned, we have Catalunya Radio's Damia Aguilar joining us, so we'll take
1: a swift break and we'll be back with the Universe MotoGP Journalist. Renthal Fat Bars are
0: synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the worksfit handlebar comparison tool at RENTHAL.com to find the perfect bend.
1: Damien, thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you came to work in GP. Um, How long have you been around the paddock? Uh, and yeah, what's your what's your current role now?
4: I started uh, traveling uh, to the circuits uh, in 2001. I, I'm involved in, in Catalunya Radio for 30 years now. Um, but it uh, was that uh, year that my boss uh, said to me, you will do this uh, from now on. And uh, I've been 20 years uh, traveling around. And since the pandemic, I, I mean, the things change a bit. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say for me, but because of Mar Marquez, you know that uh, probably he was the, the, the main reason to go to the circuits. And when he started uh, being injured and and not not winning so much races, so the, the activity has been uh, low and low. Uh, from twenty fourteen, we broadcast all the races live in Catalonia Radio, but in because of the pandemic, this was uh, this activity was cut, and and we are now uh, again doing it, but only online. So I'm not traveling uh, to all the races. I mean, I'm traveling to four or five races per year, but I'm really involved in in, in the MotoGP world because, uh, well, we broadcast two races per per week this year, and I'm really happy about
1: it. I mean, um, when I was I, earlier this morning, kind of getting ready for this call, I thought, okay, how many riders, how many Catalan racers can I think of the top of my head that have won championships or races? And I reached 17 since late eighties. And I think the first rider that popped into my mind was Cito Pons. Um, yes, it, it's yes. quite a staggering amount, really, especially in proportion to maybe the rest of Spain. Um, I'm not, I, I don't want to ask you to explain that because that's too big of a question. But um, the tradition that
4: no, 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 oh. I, I'm fresh, I'm fresh because I, I remember years ago I, I did a, a report about this. Um, the 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 numbers say that uh, Spain has won seven hundred eight races, and uh, um, related to my numbers, uh, Catalan uh, Catalan riders have won three hundred twelve. So this is a forty four percent that it's. Too much, and uh, that report I did uh, years ago was because I compare always Catalonia with uh, Emilia Romagna in Italy. So you you know that Emilia Romagna has probably is is probably Emilia Romagna the the region where uh, most riders have born and most championships uh, have won. If you don't take. Uh, Agostini, because he's not from the Emilia Romagna, he's from Bergamo in the north. And in Catalonia, it's the same if you don't take Angel Nieto, that he's from uh, Zamora in the northwest, and, and he's the one who has uh, won more races. But, but mainly, Catalonia has concentrated, and uh, I'm talking about uh, Mar Marquez, obviously, Dani Pedrosa, uh, uh, Spargaro Brothers, Alex Rins, Maverick Viñales, and in the past, Crivillé, Checa, Gibernau, Sito Pons, Alzamora, and and and, and so other. So uh, we've been strong, we still are, but I have to say that I don't see uh, a clear future.
0: Uh, it's an interesting comparison with Emilia Romagna because Emilia Romagna is. The, uh, the 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 two wheel, or was it? no, Motorsport Valley. Motor Valley is what they call it. That's right. And so it is, it's the engineering because you have uh, Ducati there. You had historically the other motorcycle man, uh, manufacturers, uh, also the car manufacturers, especially uh, Ferrari and on all the high performance. Um, and so you, also you have in Catalonia, you have Bultaco. Uh, you had all of these historic brands.
4: Osa, Puch, Sunglass—these uh, are the the, the uh, ancient uh, brands. Derry—they yep. don't exist anymore because the times are different. I, I have to say that the Emilia Romagna is more powerful in terms of the car brands and and the circuits because they have several ones in the area. But uh, I, I like to do this comparison because I think there are many things in common, and and. I think the most the, the the best moment of our lives was when when we 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 Catalan riders were seven in the MotoGP category so this is huge and now it's not seven anymore it's really difficult to be seven anymore but there has been this moment
0: why the change the change that once Catalunya was so dominant, and he, because you said you don't see the, the future as bright for Catalan riders. Well,
4: I, yeah, I don't see the future bright right now because when I was uh, uh, leaving for a uh, MotoGP world champion, uh, we had uh, Pedrosa winning in the lower categories, for instance, but uh, not, no Gibraltar didn't get it, and uh, Checa didn't get it and um but the promotion that the federations did from the beginning i i i would say 80s 90s of the last century and the, the beginning of this century was uh, the results are now and and probably that culture uh, was extended to the whole Spain and now if you really can check it is not Catalonia who the, the region that is um, um, sending people to the World Championship is uh, Valencia, is Murcia, uh, Acosta, for instance, even Madrid, uh, Martin, or Mallorca with uh, Jorge in, in in the past and now with uh, with Mir and with so, some other. It's true that uh, Nieto was um, I mean uh, born as an athlete in Catalonia and also Jorge, for instance. No? With, I mean, the, the, the powerful still is because we have these six riders in MotoGP now, but uh, I don't know if uh, any other rider will be in this position in the near future. I don't see this for now.
2: You talked a little bit about the federations there, Damia, and promoting the sport. Can you tell us a little bit how they basically developed this situation? When we had seven Catalans riding the MotoGP, how is it possible for so many excellent riders from one small region—well, not small, but one region in in a country—to reach the the very top of one certain sport?
0: I
4: think I think probably it's funny to to speak about it, but you know, because you live in Barcelona, you know which is the weather. So the weather is a main thing because you have the possibility to go out and enjoy and. Uh, whatever reason is, we had the pioneers. Okay, uh, the first one was 1968. Is the first victory of a Catalan slash Spanish rider in the Grand Prix. It was um, Salvador Canellas. But Salvador Canellas was a is an extra uh, extraordinary man because he could ride a bike and he could ride a car. And um, obviously, if you have the reference. Uh, probably you 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 have the path to go, and you have the desire for the for the children to go. If the sun is shining, you go out. If it's raining, nobody goes out.
0: Is this you're only saying that because you're speaking to three English people or to you know people people <laughs> from the United Kingdom? <laughs> no, I know
4: I know you English and American. Uh, you, you have um, I mean a, a big history in motorcycling, but I understand here this is. This is the reason. Obviously, you you need the money, and uh, the parents uh, can have the money until a certain point, and then is where the federations understand that they have to help them to achieve their dreams. So you create a uh, um, a small class, but not one small class. You create one, two, three, four, five small classes, even before the one to five, and then you have the the children. Uh, growing up slowly but steadily until they get uh, the Spain championship, for instance, uh, you can you can you can deny Dorna is born in Barcelona. So I mean, this everything has this reason because everything is linked, and uh, there's a moment when you achieve what you are thinking about, and then with the with the example of uh, because in the past was Jarama in Madrid but Jarama I, I mean disappeared as as, uh, as an icon of, um, of of the circuits it was Jerez but uh, it was Montmelo when Sito Ponce, the first time he's a world champion um, he pushed the politics to to do the circuit and we had the circuit in in the 1990s so if you have a big uh, facility like this, it also helps you to everybody realize you can get it because you remember uh, in the past we said okay Spain is strong in the lower categories but not in the big ones. In we are strong in the big ones when the Catalans go to the big ones. But but because I mean they were to, they were to school and and they were good in 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 the school. They had the 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 managers because Alzamora was the manager of of Mark, and because uh, Burillo was the manager of Cito in that moment um they they were grow up together with the money of the federations with the money of the government because they paid for the for the circuit and all this combination uh, helps you to uh, to achieve what you what you want
1: i mean did you ever see any of the endurance races in the 80s in montjuic and do you remember Montmeló being built and the first gp races there
4: no because my um my activity in this world started uh, after this i remember i remember montjuic but not for uh, probably one or two races but i was really small i remember more montjuic because my father Took me there to see rugby, rugby uh, matches in the old stadium, and the stadium what was almost destroyed. That that now is the, is the is the stadium of the of of the of the Olympics. But everybody knows about the power of Montjuic when uh, with the motorsports because we had the Formula One even there. And, well, now Montjuic is only for for cycling.
1: Yeah, I mean, we should also mention to people that don't know, the Montmeló is actually the circuit, the Barcelona Catalonia. Catalunya. Um, you know, that's sort of the, the hill in which it's built. But, um, I mean, you've mentioned you traveled around seeing MotoGP since 2001. You know, what, when it comes to the Catalan GP, how would you describe it as being different to, say, Jerez, or Valencia? Is there a different atmosphere? Is, is, the, is the public response to MotoGP and motorcycle racing a bit different?
4: Well, when, when, when you have four races in Spain, you understand that uh, the people is going there because uh, they are close to there. Jerez probably is different because Jerez, uh, I think, this is the one in Spain. But uh, normally, Catalunya has had uh, grandstands full of uh, Catalan people. Mostly, it's not uh, the same in Formula One because we had we have only one Formula One race in Spain. So normally, uh, it comes people from from all over Spain. But in the case of Catalan GP, normally, it's uh, Catalan people who goes to to the grandstands because you have to consider that four races, probably for the people is is not uh, easy to. To cope with all the money that you should uh, spend for that, no, uh, different. Sure, sure is different because uh, all races are different, and uh, and because I consider Montmeló as the big, big circuits in the world. It's not an old school circuit; it's a modern circuit. Now it's being re well resurfaced and 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 goes to a uh, process uh, to rebuild, rebuild uh, uh, it to to, to maintain the, the facility in the first division.
2: Damio, I'd like to ask you just um, about the state of MotoGP in Catalonia currently. Um, I've had numerous conversations with taxi drivers who said <laughs> they used to watch MotoGP when it was on the terrestrial television, but now that it's on the zone or something yes, like that, or movie, pay-per-view, pay-per-view movie star, pay-per-view. then they've they they don't yes. see it so much. I mean, do you see the the kind of the popularity of, of MotoGP now? Is it is it linked to the success of Mark Marquez? And it, is that maybe one of the reasons why it, it suffered in recent years?
4: It's difficult to say, but I, I think obviously the loss uh, of Mark is uh, one of the main causes of uh, of this ha- I heard or I um, learned about the early um, audiences of the pay-per-view and are, are, not, uh, are not good enough. And it's, it's a strange because I consider this is a, a, a big, big, big show. But uh, the country, our country pays for the football and pays for no more in general probably probably the formula 1 but no more now we have the basketball in pay-per-view now we have uh, some football in pay-per-view the uh, premier league even or even the the female league that now is growing and something like that but well i'm not an expert everybody says this is the future and probably is but uh, i remember when when the football was uh, the first time in pay-per-view, it was difficult to get in. But today, nobody, nobody uh, doubts that uh, football is in pay-per-view forever. And probably this has to be with with uh, the bikes. Obviously, if you don't you don't have a rider uh, winning uh, or trying to win every session every weekend, uh, well, people. Prefers to go to the beach, and and they were. I mean, probably you have the social media to see what has happened, and and if you are interested, you can go to the MotoGP to to review or or, or different clips in in the social media, and so on. This is what we have to do. I mean, this is this is the reality, and we had we have to cope with this. And I understand there are people who um, big brains that can. Uh, try to go on with this.
0: Yeah, I think the mm. Mm, it's easier for football in a way because there are I don't know every weekend you buy, you know, you're paying your whatever it might 10-20 uh, euros a month for football, but what you're getting for that football is you're getting, you know, games on Saturday, games on Sunday, games on Wednesday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, it's almost, I don't like football. And so it seems like every time uh, I go somewhere, there's a football match on. So the, you get, the, it's so much more value for money than motorcycle racing, where even though having the, the race on Saturday and the race on Sunday is good. Um, uh, you know it gives it gives more value but it's still not the same you you don't have you know you don't have a, a grand prix uh, on a tuesday or a wednesday so uh, on a, on a wednesday night sort of thing it's a very different package well i think i think the, the sprint races
4: are a good thing i mean the passion is the passion is but i don't know why people prefer to go to the beach this <laughs> is another thing so we should we should think uh, uh about this because i understand if you give them a uh, i would show. Why not? I mean, I, I, I if I like motor racing, one hundred percent. Probably I like football ten percent. But the general uh, desire of the people in Spain is opposite. So, one hundred uh, football and ten percent motor sports, or twenty or, or thirty. No?
1: Speaking about the job, um, when it comes to Catalan riders, we usually go to media debriefs, and they will talk for five. Say, let's talk about Mark. Mark will talk for five minutes in English. So, first of all, you have to be lucky to get a question in. Then he'll talk for five <laughs> minutes in Spanish. And then you, Namiya, are usually alone or with another Catalan colleague and you have him to yourself to talk in Catalan for a few minutes. Um, is that, I mean, of course it's necessary for your job, but sometimes is it very useful? Does he say stuff to you in Catalan that, you know, he maybe doesn't say to other journalists and other media? Well. I would say writers understand this pretty much than
4: some journalists. <laughs> but um, I, I had no problem at all with uh, with this because if I travel, if I invest my money, if my company invests their money to go to all the races, that means to go to Australia or, or America, where you really spend a lot of money is because they are Catalan, they speak Catalan, they think Catalan, and they can communicate to me in Catalan. And because I am broadcasting in Catalan. So, uh, if I'm in the circuit, if I'm not in the circuit, I'm, I mean, no problem. We I mean, Even I broadcast uh, them in English if it's necessary. I have no problem because what I consider important is the message, not the language. But if I am in the circuit, I ask for them. I will will ask for them always in Catalan, and uh, it's the same with with Fabio. Fabio speaks Spanish perfect, so it's normal thing that the Spanish media seek them, seek him, and ask for him questions in Spanish. That's at the end of the day. This is the same. Um, Jorge, Lorenzo can speak Catalan, but but it's not his. Uh, mother tongue. So I, I, I never speak with him in Catalan. I speak with him in Spanish because I understand his his way. But with the Spanish writers, always there are a case where one, two of them, the Catalan is not the mother tongue, and they don't use Catalan uh, normally. And I can understand. Well, okay, no problem. If I and if, intervie- if I interview, if I interview. Alberto Puig, I can interview him in Catalan or in Spanish, but I know that he expressed better the message in Spanish, so I have no problem for this.
0: I, I, it was always interesting for me staying on with uh, some of the debriefs and then listening to the the Spanish debriefs and also the Catalan debriefs, because I've learned to at least understand enough of Catalan to, to get an idea of what they're saying. Um, mm-hmm. But they do seem to be a little bit more open in their languages, because also I remember talking to, uh, I think Ronald Carter. Um, from the World Superbike Party years ago. And I was saying, Oh, can we do an interview for the podcast? He said, Sure, no problem. What language is it going to be in? Uh, English or Dutch? And they said, Oh, it's in English. I said, All oh, right, well, I have to be more careful because I know that everyone listens to to it in English, and especially the factory bosses will listen to it in English. So they have to be much more careful. Yeah. Uh, uh, m- much more diplomatic about what they say. And sometimes you feel, because I, I do think there are some writers who express themselves so much better in their native uh, uh, native language. I think Mark is one of those. His English is good, um, but he's not as precise in his Spanish. Yeah, um,
4: His English is not, I mean, his English is not uh, as good as his Spanish or his Catalan. This is normal. And even Valentino, you know, yeah. Valentino, he, he changed to the Italian debrief uh, I mean you can extract more from the, his Italian words than his English words because you, we all know which was the English of uh, uh, Valentino but I think this happens with all the languages with your native language you always be more precise, more clear and uh, normally okay they they can speak English but I mean I don't think the Spanish writers have a very good uh, English level. I remember Sete Barnau probably was the best of them. He had a very good uh, English uh, level, but uh, not Trippier. Danny Pedrosa also has a very good English.
1: Yeah, Danny had a good level of English. He just sometimes didn't want to use it with us, which, <laughs> um, you know, is uh, understandable. we <laughs> just two quick questions to finish, and I'm going to put you on the spot for these ones. Um... We have two riders that speak Catalan. Well, one is Catalan. Another one's Mallorca, uh from Mallorca, Augusto Fernandez, both riding for a Catalan, originally a Catalan brand. Um, we have okay. Pedro Acosta coming into MotoGP. Oh. What do you think, uh, you know, is is it Paul or is it going to be Augusto that makes way for Acosta next year? What's your, what's your thoughts?
4: This is a very difficult thing. Uh, do you remember the? I, I understand you remember the the interview we did with uh, Carlos Espeleta uh, several uh, weeks ago, and and he said there won't be more bikes. That was a really I understand uh, tough to to hear, hard to hear from the KTM, KTM team because they have a big big problem right now and i don't know what will happen i think and i i truly think that there is no a fifth bike for the ktm i don't know why i don't know why i thought they will use it they would use it to exchange the the uh, the okay for the concessions for the japanese and so on but well i don't know what, what is happening but uh, i've i've heard um, Augusto says he has another year and he has been confirmed. And if you, if you speak with the entourage of, of Paul, they say they don't need a confirmation because they have two year, a two year contract. And even Paul has a future beyond with the KTM house, beyond his condition of, of, of rider. So this is really, really, really difficult. But if I have to uh, okay you have to answer okay I would say Augusto would be sidelined in any form. I don't know how probably probably I've uh, I read uh, from from a colleague from Emilio Per Rojas probably uh, is uh, a test rider and different uh, wheel cars, five wheel cars or something like this. And wait for the 2025. I don't know. This is this is really well. This is interesting, but I understand this is stuff for the KTM group.
0: If uh, Paul has a future with KTM beyond his riding career, then maybe he can get started on that future beyond the riding career early.
4: Maybe. Why not? It, it, uh, well, it, it could be. But uh, I, well, at the end of the day, they they feel they are confirmed, but. You know how the brands are using the riders right now, especially Ducati and especially KTM. They are using the riders. They are treating them as bad as they can.
1: Lastly, we've seen you know Aprilia, well Alesh, let's hope he can count the laps correctly this year. Uh, we've seen Suzuki, we've seen Yamaha, we've seen KTM all be competitive at the circuit de Barcelona, Catalunya. So Dami, who's your tip? For the weekend, who do you think is going to be, you know, um, standing out in the results on Sunday?
4: I would say Aleix because he was almost doing this, but uh, I think the the weather forecast is, is announcing…
1: Is unstable, yeah. Yeah, so I would say Alish Okay. Dami, thanks ever so much for your time. It's great to see you and very unusual to hear you speak in English. Good job. Yeah, that was pretty cool to hear from Damier there. So um, we'll see him at the track. Thanks for joining us. And um, just to wrap things up here, guys, a shout out to a new patron, Cape Gypsy, and also to Andrew Dimonbrun, who I hope I pronounced that correctly, who was inspired to travel outside of the US for the first time and come to Mizano this year after hearing our show earlier on in 2023, guys, about which GPs to visit. Um Andrew, just some advice, fill your boots with good pizza. Don't leave anything valuable in your car near the track and uh, stand at the end of the back straight for some of the, well, one of the most memorable viewing spots um, on the calendar. We also had a question from Anna from Seattle. Um, I hope you're keeping dry over there and getting plenty of sleep. Um, She asks when VR46 will upgrade their pit box chairs because um, Bez and Luca Marini just seem to be sitting on some pretty shoddy fold-up items. Uh, Dave, we're going to send you down to the pit lane for um, FP1, if that's still what it's called, (laughs) um, Friday morning to to unearth and find out what's going on with the Mooney VR46 pit chairs. But to be honest, you know, they're a team that look after the details. I mean, we've both been lucky, or all three of us have been lucky to sample some of the excellent cuisine they have in their hospitality. And when it comes to design and everything else, they're pretty much on the money. So, um, yeah, we're going to have to investigate why they have these flimsy fold-up chairs compared to these sort of big gaming um, style, I don't know, furniture that the other teams have. Uh, we also had a request from Highside Specialist from the Classic Car Club in New York City, who asked us if we'd be interested to interview Ben Spees. Um, thoughts? Um, I mean, I think Ben, guys, has to count as one of the last great or one of the last memorable riders to come out of the US and achieve something at world level. Um, arguably had a career that should have gone on to better things. What do you think, Dave?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, like he was—he was a fantastic writer. You know, he was definitely the last great American hope. Um, he he cut his teeth fighting Matt Maladdin, and I think that um, sort of that rivalry really drove him on to a much much greater uh, level. He, his career was cut way too short with that horrible crash. I think in Indy when he really did his shoulder uh, when he really did his shoulder in um that pretty much ended his career um it shows again how how incredibly vulnerable riders careers are to injury you know one bad crash and it, and it can all be over um and it is a little bit it's a bit difficult because you don't really see very many american riders coming through there's no one that you really think oh yeah yeah they they can really be someone
1: yeah so uh high side specialist we'll get in touch um if you need us to interview ben we'll only be too happy to uh, help out there and do what we can um over to you Neil because uh, we're closing the show with predictions for the grand premier monster energy the Catalunya who's your pick uh, for victory on Sunday
2: well I think only a fool would look past uh, the current uh, world champion at, at, at present because he's on that sort of on that run of form which is um pretty indomitable However, I think Jorge Martin could be a good shot for this weekend as he's a good record at, um, the, uh, the circuit of Barcelona, Catalunya. As it's now known, he was second there last year. Couldn't quite hold on to Fabio Quattararo's coattails, but was better than the rest. Um, and if he can sort out of his qualifying, because his qualifying has been rubbish in the last, uh, three weekends, um, then I think he can be someone that can take the fight to, to Banyaya. But, um, yeah, I'm sort of looking at this again as a, as a sort of, a contest between two Ducati's, maybe three, and uh, maybe one or two Aprilia's.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear Damio vouching for Alessio Spargaro. I think on that same basis, I'm going to go for Maverick Vinales. I think he's um, overdue a bit of good fortune.
2: Did you see the races in Austria?
1: Yes. yes i believe in maverick i'm a believer dave uh, who who do you fancy for victory
0: uh yeah i mean like alesh if he can uh learn how to count uh, right now there are only ducati tracks left on the circuit so i'm going to say pekka Banyaya, it's just impossible to look past it
1: well, back the favorite good idea dave don't veer too far away from maybe to change your fantasy team that's the important thing
0: I tried. I was. I'm actually really annoyed because I. Uh, I tried to uh, change it um, for Austria, but the change didn't go through somehow, and so I ended up um, uh, not having put Maverick Vinales in my in my team. So that was. Um, I'm really quite annoyed and i think I've, i i think i've still got Raul fernandez in my team which is uh, i'm not he's not scoring me many points that's all i'm gonna say
1: well listen thanks to Damia for coming on and um, having to speak in his third language uh, thanks to steve for delaying his tea off time thanks to you too and of course thanks to rental.com and to everybody who's listened to the podcast we'll be back right after the uh, the 11th round of the season on monday